Hey y'all, welcome back. I'm excited you are here as always. So last week's episode, I talked about my Navigating Grief and Loss course that just launched, the pre-sale at least just launched, um, and I talked about dates in September. I'm actually pushing those dates to October and November um, after talking to some people that are registered and also considering my own uh, shoulder surgery that's going to be happening at some point. I figured we're going to run um, the course twice. So if you sign up, you can access all of them, but I'm going to have the first module split in two different days. So we'll run the first module on two days in October and the second module on two days in November. It's just a two-part course. Uh, they're two hours each plus a th- plus a 30-minute question and answer after, so two and a half hours. Um, so the pre-sale will go on. I think I'm going to run it probably through the majority of the month of September. I don't have a specific end date for you guys yet, but the pre-sale is $50 off, so it's going to be for $150 instead of $200 if you sign up right now. Um, this course is super special. Uh, if you've followed me for a bit, you know I, I really have been invested in talking a lot about how to process grief, how to process loss, and how talking about death needs to become a, a normal, commonplace thing in, in culture and in society. Um, because often it's the things that we avoid the most that we need to discuss and be more open with and work on that call us into the light. Um, and so if you're struggling with a breakup, if you're struggling with the loss of a family member of a loved one to death, uh, if you're struggling with with losing a friend, and, and this isn't just to physical death, but to voluntary death, like separation, like growing out of a friendship, like someone leaving you, right? Are you leaving someone else? Um this is the course for you. Uh, I think there's an absolute beauty and connectivity in healing community. And so we're going to have uh, presentations for myself, of course, but then we're going to break off into small groups, intimate settings, and share and really learn from each other, respond to a lot of different questions and different prompts and come back into the bigger group and share and learn as a, as a collective. Um, so I'm really inspired by this course. I held my Build Better Relationships course in March. Um, of, of this year. And, uh, and it, it would just, it did phenomenally well. I had such a fun time. Um, we had almost 40 to 50 people live every session, which, which was awesome. And so I really am hoping for an even bigger turnout for this navigating grief and loss course because it's so close to my heart. Um, I think this, this is an incredible, uh, course and it's incredible value for 150 bucks. Um, so if you are interested, please consider registering, click the link in the show notes. You can also head over to my Instagram and click the, the link in my bio and that'll take you to my webpage and then just navigate over to courses and it'll be the first one under the drop down menu um, and go ahead and, and register. And um, we'll send an email once you register and we'll let you know when those dates are set in stone. Um, but I'm holding it two times now so it can, you know, be, be a little bit more pliable for people's schedules. I know everyone, you know, has different schedules, whether you have kids or, or you're in Europe or in a different country. Um, so I really want to make this as accessible as possible to people all over the world. So please register for the Navigating Grief Loss course. If you're interested, click the link in the show notes. Also, if you're interested in working with you one-on-one, um, I absolutely love working with people in one-on-one settings. I work with primarily all my clients on Zoom nowadays. I work with individuals, couples, athletes. Uh, click the link as well too in the show notes, www.nicobarraza.com um, and click on book a session. You can book always a free 15-minute Zoom consultation just to get to know me, to ask questions. I can tell you a little bit about my process of working with people and couples and we can go from there. If you think it's a good fit, I would absolutely love the opportunity to work with you. So this week's guest is Dr. Elizabeth Fedrick. 
Dr. Fedrick is a licensed professional counselor who specializes in working with relationships and trauma, and she's based out of Phoenix, Arizona, and has started her own private practice there that is a flourishing company. She also has a very large social media following and a podcast of her own. I'll throw the links to all her social media and her website in the show notes, so make sure to click on that if you want to get in touch with her, give her a follow. Her company, if you're based out of Arizona, is EvolveCounselingAZ.com. Check out her website. Um, she works with a whole host of clients and has people working under her. Absolute brilliant woman. Um, and I and I saw uh, Dr. Fedrick's Instagram came up on my on my search like this is a couple of weeks ago, and she had followed me, and I started to watch her content, and I was just really uh, inspired, like I normally am when I see people that are very authentic and vulnerable who work in this space um, about how real she was about the process of navigating one's trauma, and specifically one thing that piqued my interest is the way she discusses what she calls our relational programming, uh, which she breaks down to essentially being how our upbringing directly influences our patterns and relationships, including the romantic partners that we choose and how we behave in these relationships. So this entire conversation with Dr. Fedrick is all about relational programming. And then we get into what are the steps we need to take to reprogram our negative core beliefs and our maladaptive behaviors uh, that, that she says frequently become barriers to finding and maintaining healthy relationships. And my conversation with her is incredible. Um, I think you guys are going to love it as I do I think you're going to love all the episodes. Um, but this was a great conversation. Uh, it was, it was an honor, obviously, to spend time with her. And thank you so much, Dr. Fedrick, for coming on the show and sharing an hour with me. And I hope I hope to have her back on again. Um, I think the next episode we plan on getting into uh, on how to uh, consciously decouple, meaning that if you're going through a separation, whether a divorce or a breakup, a lot of us want to know, how do we do this in a healthy way? How can we maintain friendship? How can we maintain connection? How, how do we avoid just throwing away everything we've built, right? How do we step into a new container, redefine what the relationship is that we we're going to have moving forward if we're not in a romantic partnership, right? And so I'm going to have her on. We're going to talk about co-parenting, talking about healthy divorce, um, these different things in our next episode that we have together. But for this one, it's all about relational programming. And uh, it's something that you, I, everybody has. We all have relational programming. It's part of our emotional inheritance that we get uh, through childhood, through looking at our caregivers and how they love and how they've taught us how to how to give and receive love. So this is worth your while, no matter what you're into out there. I hope you tune in for the entire episode. Um, as always, if you guys can do this, it means so much to me. Pause the show right now. And if you're listening on Apple, just leave the show a five-star written review. It takes you two seconds. If you're driving, just pause it when you get out of your car, when you're walking to work, you're picking up your coffee. It means a lot. If you could take just a little bit of time out of your day and give back, it's a free thing you can do to give back to the show. Pause the show, leave a five-star written review on Apple. And if you're on Spotify, or even if, you, if you're not on Spotify and you go to Spotify, please do this too. Leave a five-star review on Spotify. Spotify doesn't let you write reviews yet, but you can leave a star rating um, and you can you can leave that as well too. And uh, follow the show, subscribe to get notifications for when we when I launch new episodes. Um, that just means a lot, guys. Again, free way you can get back to the show. Um, 
And as always, if you really want to support monetarily, we have, I have a starve the ego, uh, feed the soul, um, sort of swag thing that I'm building with t-shirts, cups, mugs, and, and they're, they're, it's pretty legit. I'm not going to lie. So if you go to www.nicobarraza.com, head over to the storefront and, and buy yourself some gear, buy your spouse some gear, buy your boyfriend, your girlfriend some gear. Um, there, there's some really cool sh- shirts on there that I'm, I'm pretty proud of or buy yourself a couple of stickers, throw them on your, on your laptop or on your car. Send me a photo, tag me on Instagram if you do this. Uh, it's always um, incredibly inspiring to see people all over the world rocking uh, this gear from this little old podcast that, you know, we started a little over a year ago now. So um, very much inspired when you, when you all support the show and uh, the proceeds just, they just go right back. I, I do this show pro bono. I don't make any money off the show as of right now. And so any of the proceeds really just go back to producing the episodes and, and, you know, line, doing all the things that are, that, um, that, that have to get done to actually produce this show, uh, to the level that I, that I want to produce it at, which is hopefully as high quality as possible out there. All right. So without any more waiting, we're going to talk about relational programming and how to reprogram yourself. Dr. Elizabeth Fedrick. Welcome back, everybody. And I have the wonderful Dr. Elizabeth Fedrick joining me today. We connected on Instagram, her profile. I think my profile maybe popped on your on your search thing, and then we kind of started going back and forth. And um, she is a local Arizonan, as am I, although I'm not in the state right now. So, uh, you know, close to the heart. I love her work. We're going to talk about some very interesting topics today. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you so much, Dr. Liz, for joining me. Uh, it's an honor. I'm humbled to, to be in your presence and to share a little bit of time with you in the chat. Yes, for sure. Thank you for having me. I'm glad we were able to get this set up as we have established. We have a lot of alignment in the work that we do and, and our values around that. So I'm excited to be here. 100%. I'm excited to, to chat with you. So um, we talked a little bit about this off air, but primarily a lot of the stuff that you talk about on shows and on podcasts is relational programming. And I love that because I've talked about that a good amount. But can you start us off with what is relational programming and why should we all care about it? Yes, absolutely. So relational programming being the concept of our earlier life experience, really our earliest life experiences throughout the lifespan, really shaping what we come to believe relationships should be like, how we should be um, treated by others, what we should expect from others. And so these early interactions with our caregivers really set the stage for that, whether our parents can show up as warm, nurturing, attentive, or maybe if they're abusive, chaotic, neglectful. And then of course, along the spectrum of that, but the consistent interactions with our caregivers really sets the stage for this programming. And, and the idea of, you know, the, the input influences the output. And so how we are treated by them, how these interactions uh, make us feel, how we react to these reactions, they or react to these interactions, mm-hmm. really all translates into our adult relationships. And so, I mean, that's a really nutshell version of it. But essentially, you know, when we talk about the impact of childhood and people get so burnt out on, yeah, yeah, my childhood, I get it. But no, really, your childhood. Let's look into it. Absolutely. I mean, I've even noticed in myself, like uh, 99% of my patterns in adulthood are behaviors learned from watching my caregivers interact 
at a, at a very young age, you know, from, from when I have my first memories, you know, whether that's like healthy interactions from showcasing physical affection and appreciation and gratitude and love and unhealthy interactions from screaming, yelling, you know, uh, you know, uh, defaming someone's character, right? Being angry, being mean, uh, shutting down, like repressing your feelings and emotions, you know, and, I, and I've seen these things play out in my own relationships in myriads of ways. And honestly, that's what got me into therapy when I was 23. It, it's, it's me looking at that and being like, wait a minute. Like the shit I'm doing is continuing no matter who's in front of me. Although that person does bring out certain things depending on the dynamic, but the things are already there in existence, right? They can't be sort of fabricated out of nothing. And, you know, for people that, that like seem over, like feel overwhelmed, right? To begin on, on where do you start looking at behavioral patterns and how do you correlate those to your, your parental dynamics? Is there a way, because, you know, a lot of folks are really averse to this because they don't want to demonize their parents. You know, they're like, well, I'm so gracious. I'm so appreciative for everything my parents gave me. But I often find that those folks have, have a hard time being honest about maybe the, some of the unhealthy patterns that maybe are a little bit harder to find because they're not so blatant. Like, well, my, 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 you know, parent never hit me or never yelled at me, but there's some, some smaller sort of micro aggressions usually or something that exists. You know, we, none of us make it out of childhood unscathed. We're human beings. We're fallible, right? Is there like, is there some way you lead people? that, you know, a little bit more, that makes it a little bit more palatable that they can like, you know, hold, I guess, the tension of the opposites between, you know, appreciating their parents for what they gave, but also being real about, you know, the shit that they, that they have now as adults. Yeah. And I mean, that is also true that betrayal of our parents, the betrayal of our family unit. I sit with clients all the time and they say, you know, they maybe finish talking about an event from childhood and they'll follow it up by saying, I feel really guilty for telling you that right now. Mm-hmm. And it is so true. We have been conditioned to really protect our family, protect our parents. And we don't want them being perceived as a villain or anything along those lines. But what I usually do with my clients is I do a timeline activity that takes place over the span of a couple sessions. And the idea with that is we start to identify significant events that took place early on. So we start at birth. What have they been told about that time of their life? What what narrative has been shaped for them? And then we move that timeline forward and we identify significant events during that time. And I really ensure that my clients understand that a significant event is subjective. So it is what was significant to them. It could have been somebody looking at them funny in the hall. It could have been dad's stoic face all the time. You know, whatever that those covert things are that you're describing really can influence us just as profoundly as some of the bigger experiences. And so when we go through this timeline, we work to identify themes. And so what do we see popping up repeatedly? What do we, and what core belief is that attached to? So do we see there's multiple instances of rejection, of abandonment, of not feeling good enough, of having to feel like they have to work for love? Mm -hmm. And then really when we get to that, the end of that timeline, we sit with these themes and we we make sense of and conceptualize, okay, well, yeah, that's, that would make sense why you continue to show up the way that you do today, because you've been shaped in that way. Um, Running on Empty by Jonice Webb, I think it is Jonice Weber, Jonice Webb, something like that. But Running on Empty is a really great book that I recommend to a lot of my clients when they do bring up, I wasn't hit, I wasn't neglected, I had a roof over my head, I had food. 
she talks about the significance of emotional neglect. And we could have had all of our basic physical needs met, but we are not only physical beings. We have our, our bodies, our souls, our hearts, our, you know, there's so much that goes on with that physical, emotional, and spiritual component that makes us whole. And so often it's easy to neglect that emotional and spiritual piece that are two thirds of really our full being. And so we just look at, well, they showed up for our physical well-being, but what about the rest? And that rest, the rest of that is incredibly powerful and how it shapes not only how we show up in relationships, but our mental health, our mood states, how we respond to any of our life events. Absolutely. You've spoken about the process of reprogramming and I work a lot with clients on reparenting, which is essentially the same thing because reprogramming is reparenting yourself in a way, right? Giving yourself permission to, you know, feel your feelings, to embrace some of the things that you, you know, maybe have been putting in the shadows, right? Because you don't want to address them, you know, to bring them kind of more into the light and and give them more compassion, understanding and investigate, you know, why you feel certain ways, why you behave certain ways, why you have certain moods, right? I know I've, I've studied myself a lot and, and that leads into, you know, the necessity for an awareness state or a, a sort of a, a consciousness, right? And, and you talk about yeah. that too. Can you can you explain to the listeners, you know, how awareness or consciousness impacts your ability to be really honest about what you're doing and why you're doing it? Yeah, I mean, so crucial. And that's that timeline becomes so valuable in that because when we now have a visual representation of these events, It's no longer I feel like I'm overreacting or I feel like these things may or may not have happened. We have this visual and then we can use that to bring to the awareness of how it is continuing to show up. And so we can make those correlations. But you're absolutely right. And I talk so much about awareness is key. And without the awareness and without really that honesty to ourselves of what happened to us and how it's influencing us present day, we can't then move into the reprogramming phase. And so we have to start with this awareness of this is what happened. This is then how it shaped me. This is how I continue to show up. And then the second part of that is what do I need to do differently? Mm -hmm. And that's when we head into the reprogramming. And so really assessing, okay, what is actually what's going on? What can we do differently about that? And then the third part of that is really the adaptation because it's, the uncomfortable comfort zone. It's what we know. So though we can identify it's dysfunctional, it's toxic, we continue to sit in it because it's what we know. And so there also has to be time to adapt to the new and to the healthy. Do you have to create a a separation? Let's say, you know, um, let's, let's use the mother dynamic, for instance. Like, let's say, you know, if your mother's in denial about her contribution to certain things, right? I mean, I, I, I see this a lot with clients. It's like, you know, the, the mom, let's say, is very selfish or has some narcissistic tendencies and, you know, re- really just never admits they're wrong, you know, never apologizes. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just using this, everybody as a generalization, but just to set kind of a precedent here. And let's see the adult child, whether it's a man or a woman, really wants to heal from this, but still wants a relationship with their caregiver, with their, fa- with their family member, right? Because family's important. And so consistently, you know, let's say they go to therapy, they work on themselves, but they still have this relationship that's not changing, right? And so this, this model behavior is still the same. And often I see people reach a point where they're just exhausted. They don't really know what to do, right? They want to change. They want to reparent. But since they're still around their parents, still trying to keep a connection and the parent's not changing at all, you know, where do they go from there? Is it healthy to create a certain 
separation there or can people heal and reparent in a healthy way while still being around those negative behaviors? And I think that that's unique for each individual. I do believe that you can be around the individual and heal, but a big part of that is coming to acceptance of what that person how that person can show up for you and what they're actually capable of. And so it's really checking in on your expectations of that person. You know, part of the healing process is that we really work to identify what is within our circle of control, what can we influence versus what is outside of that circle, which in this example would be the mother's behaviors, the mother's mindset. We have no influence over that. And so part of that process, if we want to really maintain that relationship. It's identifying, okay, I know this is how she shows up in all of these situations. It's She's predictable. There's nothing different. I know that. And if I'm choosing to continue to put myself into those situations, I have to show up differently. I have to react differently. And I have to lower my expectations around her. And so I do believe that both can exist, but I'm also all for normalizing and supporting an individual who recognizes that both can't exist for them and that the re-traumatization that continues to happen in each of those interactions is not worth it and is not, it's not um, supportive to their healing journey. And, and neither option is wrong. It's really what that individual needs for their healing process and what they need to have optimal mental health. I love that explanation. It, it just gives so much more space for someone to choose their own path based on what they need to be healthy, you know, because I think there's there's a huge societal pressure of, uh, you know, a nuclear family to keep it intact. And and I know that every, you know, a lot of people would really like to do that. But but some folks and, and clients of mine, even myself in certain situations, you know, haven't been able to keep that connection well healing because I needed to step away to sort of just get a little bit farther from what I've what I've known to, to rebuild what I want to know, you know? Um, and I know some people, everyone's different, like you said, but, but I really appreciate you saying that because I think it takes some of the pressure off. You have to do it this way and more of like, we have to find the way that's going to work for you and provide you with longevity of you, you having healthier behaviors, right. And ultimately feeling better about yourself, right. Having, having a more self-belief and, and less limiting beliefs of yourself. Um, when we talk about relationships and partnership, uh, we, you wrote this in the, in the email when we corresponded and, and I thought it was like, yeah, no, brilliant, right? Like when, when we grow up with these certain behaviors from our caregivers, parents, or, or even let's say early childhood trauma, I find that one or two things exist within our adult patterns. We either look for one of our parents or, or a multitude of behaviors in our parents and our partner, right? Or, or, we, or we repress it so much that we look for the exact opposite, like polar opposite, right? Can you can you dive into that a little bit on on how that shows up in our adult lives? And you know, obviously not all those behaviors are negative. A lot of them are positive. But if we are finding ourselves in patterns like we keep dating or getting in relationships with the same person that's not jiving with us, where do we where do we start to change that? Yeah, and that's really that awareness piece comes in as well on that. And you're absolutely right. And that ties into the concept of our adaptive child. And our adaptive child is these, these tendencies, these behaviors, these ways of protecting ourselves that we establish really early on in childhood. And so depending on how our caregiver presents, and this is ties into all the attachment style stuff. So depending on how they present to us, we're going to figure out a way to maintain safety and to get our needs met in the 
safest and least volatile way possible. And so for some people that develops into these anxious traits of being the pursuer and they are going to be people pleasers and they will, you know, betray themselves as long as they can get the acceptance they're craving. And the, the other end of that is the avoidant. And in childhood, this might be you got in trouble and so you escape to your room or you escape to a friend's house or, you know, there's domestic violence going on. So you you find a way to keep yourself safe from that. Well, those so in the same way that you kind of pick up on the adaptive child traits in childhood, um, it translates into adulthood that, like you were saying, we either tend to gravitate towards what we know or we want the complete opposite of that. But both ends of the spectrum are always dysfunction. And so if we are, you know, striving towards something that is really familiar, but we know it's dysfunctional or if we're like, no, I'm going to go the polar opposite. Either way, we're going to end up with some really unhealthy behaviors. And so it's finding the awareness becomes key there as well. And it's about finding the gray area. As you said earlier, we're all imperfect humans just trying to navigate through this thing we call life. And we are trying to do that to the best of our ability. I would say a vast majority of us truly are trying to do the best we can with what we know. And so into adulthood, when we're picking these relationships, we're making those decisions on how we feel we can be remain the safest and then also feel accepted in that. But when we notice that it's the same person and we end up with the same disappointment and we end up in the same dysfunction, that's where it's time to check in on first, again, going back to what is my role in this? Why do I continue to choose these same partners? What are they doing for me? So with some of my clients, we really stop to assess like, what narrative are you trying to rewrite with choosing the same person? Are you choosing this same person with these similar traits because you're hoping this time around they'll choose you? And then you get to almost prove that to yourself. See, I was worth it this whole time. Or you may be choosing people who are, you know, you feel in a lot of ways you're settling. But again, you're doing it to keep yourself safe because there's less risk. Mm -hmm. And so starting with that awareness of what am I choosing? Why am I choosing it? And then really challenging and digging into some of those core beliefs is going to make a powerful difference in how you start to change that. Because really, those those core beliefs are what drive all of our behaviors. So we have to figure out what they are and how we can work to shift them. Absolutely. So you brought up the idea of settling, right? And and I find it there's always a hard line for me to find a balance in um, even advising on this because we li- we now we live in a culture where it's like we can always get something better, right? Shinier, you know, like more money, more successful, better title, whatever, what have you, right? And so I think um, specifically in our generation and the generations younger, it seems to be that like, like people are like, well, no one's good enough or no one can ever meet me, you know? And so these, there's these unrealistic expectations, right? Can you speak a little bit about where to find balance in that, like like how to know we're not settling versus our requirements just being too much and that no one's ever going to meet them. Because I, I find that that's also indicative of, of our past, of, of where we come from as well too. And indicative of how emotionally unavailable we are, right? Mm. If we are creating this list of just so many expectations and and we are, we are a culture of empowerment. We are a culture of, we deserve better and we're not going to settle for less. And we, that is a big deal, especially right now, generationally. That is, as you're saying, we see that all over social media, stop settling, you know, know your worth, all of those things, which absolutely, I'm, I'm not arguing that at all. 
but there does have to be a middle ground and we have to come back to the idea that we are all human. An activity that I do with my clients is I help them to identify. So I give them as homework to identify five needs, five wants, and then five boundaries. And so the needs, these are just non-negotiables. This is um, maybe that person needs to have a job. Um, They maybe are how they present. They have to be funny, whatever that is. So these are in order for me to be with somebody. These are the five things that have to exist. The five wants are the additions to that. And so that might be something that's more physical, maybe somebody's height or somebody being athletic or something along those lines. And then the five boundaries, these are the deal breakers. So this is maybe if somebody doesn't know how to communicate, if they aren't mutual in reaching out and engagement, you know, they're identifying what are those things that make your body feel a certain way that trigger something in you. And those become your deal breakers. And I find that this is a really effective way for people to start to find the gray because then when they start dating somebody, they can check in on these. So total of 15, but these five different things, if we really made a list it could be 5,000 things and we're never going to find it. And so we stay single and we stay in this place of, oh, I'm, I'm you know, that perpetual. I'm always going to be single. I can't find anyone. When in reality, you can, mm-hmm. but you have to get clear on what's important to you. Mm-hmm. And then that has to become your focus as opposed to all of the additional details that come along with it. Absolutely. I find like a, a mental exercise that works for me is I just consistently think about how I'm hard to be with. You know, I think that a lot of times we get so focused on the other person, what the other person provide for me, and um, you know, I think part of that self awareness uh, is is what what am I providing as a partner to the other person as well? You know, what am I offering? Am I offering patience? Am I offering compassion? Am I offering you know short temper? Like, what what do I have that I'm bringing right to the to the equation? And while keeping that in mind, you know, really like 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 what you said when we started this off is, is the only person you can control is yourself. So when you're talking about like the mother and kind of having acceptance and 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 understand that person's gonna be who they're gonna be, you know, I think we have to get to a point, and if you disagree, I'd love to hear it too, that we have to say this person's good enough. You know, this this person's good enough for us. Like I, I can accept them for the stuff that every that the stuff that, you know, maybe disagrees with me, but it's not, it's not to the limit where, um, there's some character thing or some integrity thing that I can't be with them. And I'm still sexually, spiritually, emotionally, uh, you know, mentally attracted and compatible with them. But also I find for me, a big indicator is, is this person just willing to go the extra mile and work on their shit and have radical accountability? So that way we can, as a team, because we're on the same team, move together, you know, progress together and not, try to play these power dynamics and games against each other where we're trying to consistently try to like, okay, well, I need to be on top here to have this, this power dynamic. So, you know, I know that I'm, I'm going to be taken care of and I'm going to be secure where, where that's really just kind of a facade of security. Yeah. I mean, that's an adaptive child trait, right? Like I'm, I'm going to play this game because I want to make sure that I feel safe in this dynamic. I want to make sure you're continuing to pursue me. I want to make sure I have the upper hand, whatever that is. You're right. It turns into the adaptive child traits of of keeping yourself what you think you're doing to keep yourself safe from rejection and abandonment. So I totally get that when it comes to the good enough idea. I 1000 percent agree with you on that. And that is why I think that identifying these needs and wants and boundaries are so important, because so as you're describing, one of the things that would be on your need list would be somebody who is sounds like emotionally intelligent who's willing to be accountable, 
uh, meet you in your journey on that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that would be one of those needs. And if somebody doesn't have that, you're likely not going to be with them. But if somebody doesn't have something on your want list, you could maybe get over that. And so, yes, for us to identify, like, what is truly the priority and be willing to negotiate or let go of some things that aren't on that list is so important. Have you found as you if you as you've aged and matured, matured and obviously done more of this work, you know, and studied more in this realm, has your list of needs changed? One thousand percent. Yeah, for sure. Like the the top of my list, as you're saying, is that emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. That is somebody who's in therapy, who's been in therapy, who can speak the same language that I speak. Mm -hmm. That is going to be one of the top things. And that maybe historically wouldn't I wouldn't have recognized it as being such a big deal. But yes. And then also the things that I identified as deal breakers historically aren't such deal breakers anymore. You know, I was just talking to a client about this uh, yesterday because her, um, her dating app tendencies, she continues to choose the same type of, and not that there's anything wrong with this, but wildly attractive man who continues to then disappoint her time and time again. And so we talked about like, let's really break down these wants, needs and boundaries and potentially you know, how he shows up physically needs to possibly drop down a little bit on your list because we have caught ourselves in the same pattern. And so if that's the main thing you're concerned about and that's the main thing you you start with, but also we have a whole history to show that it's been really ineffective for you, mm -hmm. um, then it might be time to shift some of those wants and needs. Absolutely. And I, I could speak from my personal experience. I've, I've spoken about this on the show in the past is that my deal breakers or preferences, which can be, you know, translated to your wants and your needs ha have, have been changed a lot. Right. Because even if you asked me like five or six years ago, you know, uh, being an athlete, being uh, very motivated, you know, driven, um, independent, because I've always wanted a, kind of a partner to share that with, not, not someone where, you know, we seesaw back and forth. Um, but the emotional, sort of intelligence or emotional availability that was on the list. It just wasn't number one, you know, and now over, you know, the, the course of my early thirties, like it, it is flipped upside down, you know, like, like I would love someone if they're athletic and above a certain height and they have these certain physical characteristics and obviously I have to be physically attracted to them. Right. But emotional availability, emotional intelligence, being able to speak this language like that is the biggest turn on. Right. That's the biggest sort right. of connection because I can because if you can have that, you can be 80 years old and wrinkly and be sitting and drinking some tea together and still pique each other's interest, still be genuinely curious in each other's story. Right. Um, yeah. I think that's a beautiful thing, you know, and I think that so many people because of our culture were sold. Oh, you just need the most beautiful person. And even if they're kind, it's going to be great. And I'm like, it's just not enough for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. Um, with the caveat of, hey, if it's not enough for you, you you have to be dang sure that you're also working on those characteristics inside yourself that you can offer someone else, right? Because I can go around looking for emotional availability all day long, but if I haven't done that work and I don't really know the shit I'm projecting and the shit I'm bringing to the table, it's sort of unfair for me to go look for the most amazing partner, go on a few dates with them, and then all of a sudden like, oh, you know, here's everything that I've that I haven't worked on. I'm I'm sorry about that, but I'm so glad I've gotten like the best partner out of this. Yes. And let me just further elaborate because I, I like that you touched on that. Being physically attracted to somebody is, I believe, a crucial component of a healthy yeah. relationship. 
So when I'm talking about like shifting what you're looking for, whether it's dating apps or what, you know, when you're out in public, it is by no means suggesting that you should just settle because you're not, well, I'm not physically attractive, but they're nice to me or they have all these. That's not that's not it. I do believe you have to be physically attracted to each other. However, what I have come to recognize with a lot of work with my clients, you may end up physically attracted to somebody who you didn't think you were because they didn't fit these key characteristics, you know, that you judge the the book by the cover. And so that is where I really challenge people to step outside their comfort zone a little bit. You can become physically attracted to somebody who you grow an emotional connection with. And so that is possible. But all of those things have to exist, in my opinion, for a healthy relationship. I absolutely agree with you. And the other thing I'd like to add on, which is a big thing for me, is is sex. Like, you know, just because someone's really physically attractive does not mean they're going to be your best sexual experience or they're going to be connected with you sexually. You know, there might be a lot right. of chemistry, might be turned on by them. But, you know, speaking from experience, uh, that hasn't always been the case with me. I haven't always had my best sexual experiences or sexual interactions with uh, women that are, you know, by societal standards. Again, this is generalization because uh, attractivity is subjective, but based on societal standards in Western culture, the most most attractive, you know, um, and I think I think that's an interesting, uh, you know, parallel for for just dynamics in, in society, and that's why I always encourage people to go out there and meet as many people as you can, have deep conversations, ask big questions, share, be vulnerable, be authentic to yourself, and in the dating process, use it to learn about yourself and other people, right? And don't just go and sort of sell yourself and be like, hey, this is the shiny front of everything. Just like get to know people on a deep level. And if you're looking for depth and you're meeting people that have an aversion to depth, at least you have an answer like, hey, you could have a friendship with this person, but they not they might not be the person that you're going to relate to, even if they are super sexy and wildly attractive and you just want to jump all over them. You're probably not going to be drawn to them closely because, you know, they're not sharing openly. They're not, they're not at that point in their life, right? And again, this isn't criticizing anyone. It's just about, I think we need to find a base level alignment emotionally, intellectually, and physically to start from, you know, where a lot of times we're sort of sacrificing from one of those buckets and then we're consistently trying to, you know, make up for it in other ways of the relationship. Right. And I don't think it is criticism at all. I think it's about self-awareness and the way that we've been doing things. There's a reason for it. We've been doing things because we think that's the way to do it. But when we know better, we do better. And so that's a big piece of that is you, the more awareness you gain, the more you can shift your behaviors towards a healthier way of functioning. Absolutely. Do you find that, um, you know, when, when people that are single come work with you or, or even, even in friendships that you had, do you, do you find that like, I just, I just had Jillian Tarecki on the show and her episode just launched this morning. And we talked a lot about singlehood and, and this like huge pressure in society. And I think this probably comes from, from parenting and from, uh, traditional, uh, viewpoints and maybe a little bit from religiosity, but there's this huge pressure of like, you need to go meet a person, you need to go meet that person, you know, be monogamous with this person, get into a relationship. Um, and I think because of that pressure, a lot of people, you know, feel this like really heavy weight on their shoulders. And if they're not meeting a person, let's say they're around a lot of a lot of friends uh, that have significant others or are in marriages, there seems to be this embodiment of loneliness because of that, right? Because oh, I can't find my person, so I'm alone, you know? And do you think that that's... Um, well, what one do you think that's that's pri- primarily societally and culturally influenced, uh, or do you think that you know there's a predisposition for that at some point in our lives where you know certain people tend to be 
you know, more, more lonely than others as far as the absence of, of having an intimate connection, you know, not, not for lack of trying, right? I'm not saying that these people aren't putting themselves out there. I'm just saying that like they might be in a situation where they're around couples all day and they're not in one, or let's say they've had a few relationships that haven't worked out and all of a sudden they, they start to embody like, well, there's just no one out there for me, right? I'm just unlovable. Yeah. And, and I do say that all the time. I say that all the, I talk with my clients daily about that concern of that, the loneliness. And I first want to normalize that humans are designed for connection. We are designed for human interaction. We are designed for touch, for affection, all of those things. And so when somebody expresses feeling lonely, I get it because you are set up in a way you are wired in a way where that is a basic human need. And so that does make sense. But then the other part. So first of all, I think our culture influences that it almost shames that need for connection, mm-hmm. um, even about, you know, it's you. You have to do the work on yourself before you can be in a relationship. You have to heal before you can be. And there's so many rules around being in a relationship that I think are really doing us a disservice because quite frankly, we heal in in connection, not in isolation. And so I think that our our culture is really sending a um, the message is really dysfunctional around that. But then the other part of what our as you're saying, what our the message our culture sends is that we should all be married and we should be in these monogamous relationships and we should have, you know, 2.5 kids in the picket fence and all the, you know, all the things. And if you don't, then what's wrong with you? Why, what, why are you so defective that you can't achieve those things? And so I do think when people sit in this state of loneliness, I do wonder how much of that is also wrapped up in shame that they feel like they aren't able, there's something wrong with them, that they can't be loved in the way that they need, that they don't feel chosen. And I do believe that that is a societal message and it continues to be perpetuated. And so it's these really, the dichotomy of we are, we are designed for connection and there's nothing wrong with you if you're not currently connected and both can exist. Mm-hmm. And so finding, really normalizing both of those experiences I think are so important but then also I am just a, I'm a huge believer in seasons. And so I don't necessarily agree with the idea of everyone is going to be in a 50 year marriage and, you know, it's perfect and rainbows and sunshine and all those things. Like I don't, I think that that part is very unique to each individual and that as a society, we have to work towards normalizing that and towards working providing acceptance around the unique experiences of each individual's relational functioning without shaming or criticizing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so before I let you go, cause I know our time short today, but I, I am going to have Dr. Liz back on because she's absolutely brilliant. Uh, I mean, just already talking to you for what have we been, we've been on 33 minutes. I'm just like, this is incredible. It's an incredible conversation. You're a wealth of knowledge, obviously. And I can see obviously how talented you are at what you're doing. Um, and I'm sure you're helping a ton of people, but you know, this, this comes up in my questions a lot when I post, you know, Hey, ask me a question on Instagram or even, even with clients that come in is that they're like, well, I lost the one you know, and the one in quotation marks, you know, I know I felt like that in my life, my own life too, um, with, with my own past relationships. Um, what are your, what are your thoughts on the idea of the one and where do you think that comes from in our, in our culture here in the West? 
I do not think that there is the one. I, I am not a believer in that. I believe that we are, again, attracted to what we are relationally programmed to be attracted to. Yeah. And I believe that we are complex beings with so much biology and neurotransmitters and pheromones and all these things that are oozing out of us at all times that really influence the relationships we end up in. I think that that, that idea of the one I think this is way too complex of a topic for me to really break down where I think that comes from. But I, I think it when we think about agriculture and we think about the idea of when these relationships were were initially formed and the advantages to them from a financial and economic perspective. And again, I've probably lost your entire audience at this point, so I'm sorry. There's a lot of good books on this topic, but I believe it's been something that's been inflicted upon us for ulterior motives is really the bottom line of that. I don't think you did lose my audience. The, the audience here is very much into these deep esoteric conversations. So love you all out there for being being like that. Um, but but I agree with you, Dr. Liz. I think that, you know, e- even looking at my past relationships, like, you know, being heartbroken and, and feeling depressed and feeling down and isolated. I've always been like, well, I lost my partner, right? I lost my my person. And and there there's kind of a half truth in that. Like they were my person at the time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, once I healed or went through the grief and not fully, cause you know, it's a process. I got to a point where I was able to love again and then, uh, you know, would meet someone else. Right. Um, and I think for, for people that get discouraged is, is specifically the ones that don't meet another person, right. That can't be lit up. They don't, they aren't lit up again. And, you know, I, I say to those people, like you have to put yourself out there and you have to risk being hurt again because you won't find another person like that, right? And oftentimes we're getting our own way, right? We're preventing ourselves from being out there and risking being hurt again. And then we're providing the excuse, well, I lost the one. So it's no one's ever going to love me like he or she did, right? Or they did. And, and I, and I absolutely agree with you. I think there, there are probably hundreds of thousands of people. If if we have 8 billion people on this planet, right? Probably hundreds of thousands of people that could love each one of us, you know, in, in a myriad of healthy and unhealthy ways. Um, but, but primarily being pretty, pretty successful, right? And I think that to meet those folks, we absolutely have to build a level of self-awareness. So that way, when, when, when we meet them, that we were able and emotionally available to embrace that connection when it's in front of us. And hopefully so, so are they. But also being able to have the courage, enough courage to know that there's risk in any sort of love that we engage in, right? There's just risk. We, we could leave tomorrow. They could leave tomorrow. We could leave today. They could leave today. There's always risk. But I think within that risk, within that mortality is this, this beauty, is this gift of you being able to feel I, what I think is the strongest, most powerful feeling of being alive, which is to feel connected deeply with another human being. Not just with love, but with all these other things. You can laugh with them. You can cry with them. You know, you know, they're, the little nuances in their body, what they do in the morning, how their breath stinks when you get up, you know, when their hair looks like a bird laid a nest in it. Like these little things that we fall in love with in human beings are, are exactly, I think, the meaning and the purpose of being human, you know, and we right. so often lose track of that because we're so focused on goals and goals and goals, which, which serve a purpose, right? Serve a purpose. The ego should not be destroyed. It should just be understood, right? And so I think that. When people come to me and they're just like, well, I don't, I feel like I lost the one. I'll never find them again. And I'm like, maybe you need to find yourself first before you continue your search. Yeah. And that the other uh, real barrier that comes along with the concept of the one ties back to what we were talking about at the beginning, that if we're constantly in search of the one, 
how many good enoughs are we dismissing? How many good enoughs? How many opportunities for connection are we losing out on because we are constantly searching for the one? And so, yes, to completely summarize it, I do not believe there is the one. I believe that we are designed for connection. I believe that we crave connection. And I do believe we can find connection from a whole lot of people. Um, it's just determining some of these key factors that are most important to you. And then, you know, working towards acceptance of the rest. Beautiful, Dr. Liz. Can you tell everyone where they can find you and where they can connect with you? I know you host your own podcast. You're, you you have a large following on social media. You've built an incredible practice uh, down there in, in Phoenix, right? And and can you can you tell the listeners where to find you, where to connect with you? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so my uh, practice website is evolvedcounselingaz.com. Uh, the, the talk show podcast that I host is Calm, Cool, and Connected, and it's on all major podcast platforms. And then my Instagram, at Dr. Elizabeth Bedrick. And yes, I, I hang out there quite a bit and happy to chat and talk all things relationship for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Liz, for, for sharing some time with me. I want to have you back on maybe this weekend if you have time. Uh, I, we have so much to talk about. I just I just want to keep keep talking to you um, about all this stuff and not just relationships. But thank you uh, so much for coming on, sharing some time with me and taking some time out of your day. Oh, absolutely. It's been an honor. Thank you for having me. I really want to ask all of you listeners out there, if you could take a couple seconds, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star written review that really helps get the podcast in more eyes, in more ears, um, and just really helps podcasts grow in in every aspect possible. So um, I would really appreciate it if you could pause it, go leave us a five-star written review on Apple, subscribe on Apple and Spotify podcasts, and turn notifications on so you get notified whenever we launch a new episode.